All right, if you have a Bible, you want to open it up to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third, third book in the New Testament. Uh, and as you get yourself sort of settled in there, uh, I also want to give kind of the big, the big overriding, like get yourself settled in because Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Um, as is our normal practice, we will work through it verse by verse, which means we're not doing this in like a month or something. Um, this is going to take us a little while. In fact, it's going to take us all the way through the end of 2021 to work our way beginning to end in the gospel of Luke. We're only going to look at four verses this morning. I promise the pace will be faster than that after this morning. Um, but we're just going to look at the first four verses, which is Luke's kind of purpose statement for why it is that he's writing his gospel. I actually want to start us somewhere else, though. I want to start us in the book of Philippians, and you don't need to turn there. But Philippians, written by Paul, um, in the third chapter, Paul makes a statement about himself, which at times in his epistles, Paul would do that. And in Philippians chapter three, Paul says this, my goal is to know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. And then a couple verses later, he says, not that I have already reached the goal, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ. Paul, the man who wrote what feels like the bulk of the New Testament, the man who wrote Romans, like laid out in the New Testament's most striking logical clarity, the truth of the gospel and all that it means and all that Jesus did for us to justify us and what he's doing to sanctify us and what it will look like when he glorifies us. That Paul said, my goal is to know Jesus. Like, don't you already, right? But, but Paul says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and I haven't reached that goal. But I'm trying to take hold of it because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. That's what the gospels are about, that you would know Christ, know who he is, know what he did, know why his life mattered, what his ministry looked like, what he cared about what he came for, what happened when he was done here on this earth. The goal is knowing Jesus. That's the goal for Paul. That's the goal for Luke in writing this gospel. And it ought to be the goal for every follower of Jesus, that we would know Christ, know him intimately, know him relationally, know him passionately. Just read the first four verses of Luke with me. This is one sentence in Greek. It's probably split into two in your translation. But in one sentence, Luke gives the reason for writing this book. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed it down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. There's Luke's statement for why it is that he's written this book. Why? Because the goal is knowing Jesus. The goal for Luke, the goal for Paul, the goal for us today 
is to know Jesus. Here's how we're gonna handle this this morning. We need to do like some sort of groundwork laying. This is gonna be a long series. It's important that we all start on the same page. And so uh, we're gonna answer some very like basic questions about Luke. Like if there were a pop quiz in an intro Bible class, about just some of the like who, what, when, where, why of the book of Luke. We're gonna do that first. Then we're gonna look specifically at verses one to four and what is Luke's purpose. Then we're gonna zoom out and talk big picture about the whole book. Some basics. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. In fact, Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Most of us think of that as being Paul, but whether by verse number, by word count, or by chapter number, Luke is actually the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Luke and Acts were actually written as one volume in two parts. The first volume, the Gospel of Luke, all about the life of Jesus and what he did while he was here. And then the second volume, the book of Acts, all about what happened in the life of the early church as the Holy Spirit empowered the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. We know that both books are written by the same person, not because Luke identifies himself in the introduction. When you read an epistle, a letter in the New Testament, usually the author comes right out and says who they are. None of the gospel writers do that. Luke doesn't do that. We know that the same person wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and we know that they went together because of another person's name mentioned in the introduction, and that is most honorable, or your translation might say most excellent, Theophilus. Theophilus literally means friend of God. Um, It's a real person that Luke spent a lot of time researching the life of Jesus and the life of the early church so that he could give to Theophilus this account so that he might know with certainty the things that he had been instructed about Jesus. And we are the beneficiaries of that 2,000 years later, that we can read the book of Luke and know with certainty the things we have been instructed about Jesus. Who was Luke? That's the first question I want to answer. Luke was a Gentile physician who was also a traveling companion of Paul. How do we know that? That's the question. How do we know that Luke wrote this? And how do we know anything about him if he never identified himself? There are three places in the New Testament that tell us something about Luke. The first one comes in Colossians chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul says, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. So what do we know about Luke? He was a doctor. He's a physician. And we also know that in the early church, Luke was dearly loved, not just by Paul, but by the early church community. He was a well-known individual, and people loved and respected him. The second place we hear about Luke in the New Testament comes in the book of Philemon. Verse 23 says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. So what else do we know about Luke? We know that he was a travel companion, but also a ministry companion with Paul, which is why it makes sense that many people would have known him and loved and appreciated him. The last place that we hear about Luke is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I list that as the last place because that's the last of Paul's letters. And so at the very end of his life, writing to who would have been kind of his closest disciple, Timothy, Paul says this, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke remains with me. 
So not only was Luke a travel companion and a ministry companion with Paul, he was faithful to and alongside Paul to the very end, including while Paul was in prison. He stayed, Luke stayed close, continued to be a friend to Paul and continued to do ministry alongside Paul. It's also worth noting that Luke was a Gentile. In fact, he's the only Gentile author in the New Testament. And so it's worth saying here that if Luke hadn't written this account, someone in the early church would have said so. Someone would have said, hold on, hold on. We all know Luke and he definitely didn't write that. But this travel companion with Paul that was dearly loved in the early church in the earliest recorded like groupings of New Testament scripture, one that comes as early as the second century, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are both listed and they're both attributed to Luke. And it has never been questioned in all of Christian history. In fact, it's one of the only books in the New Testament that people haven't questioned or debated the authorship. It's universally understood from the earliest days of the church, Luke wrote this gospel. Luke's profession as a doctor colors his presentation of the narrative. He's thorough. He wants to get names and dates and places right. He undertakes the task with kind of the intellectual rigor that you would expect a highly, in, uh, highly intelligent, highly educated doctor to do so. He interviews witnesses, gathers information from other sources, etc. Luke. When was the gospel of Luke written? The best guesses are that it was written in the late 80s, AD, so 85 to 90 AD, after the gospel of Mark, alongside the gospel of Matthew, before the gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels, meaning that they literally see together, optic meaning see, sin meaning together, S-Y-N. Most people believe that Mark is the earliest of the New Testament Gospels. It was written around 60 AD. That doesn't mean that it was the first written account of Jesus's life. It simply means that it's the earliest one that got included in the canon of Scripture. Mark took what was likely oral tradition being circulated about Jesus, but enough eyewitnesses still alive at that time that had the oral stories either detoured or grown too large or deviated from the truth, someone would have corrected them. But Mark is the earliest of the biblical writers to take those accounts, group them together into one place, and write a gospel. Sometime after that, Luke and Matthew take up the task of writing an account of Jesus' life. And what they do, most scholars believe, is that they took the gospel of Mark and they used it as a source, along with all the other information circulating out there. And that's why when you're doing like a read the Bible in a year plan, and you get to the chunk on the Gospels, and you've got a chunk from Matthew, a chunk from Mark, and a chunk from Luke all to read on the same day, it's almost reading verbatim the same thing three times. That's because Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. And they drew from that to put together their own accounts. So Matthew and Luke both believed to be written in the late 80s. And then the Gospel of John, which is, has a very different feel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, was written in around 100 AD. What is Luke's perspective? That's the third question I want to answer. Luke's perspective is God's saving work for the nations. If you're a note taker, underline for the nations. That is Luke's really big push 
Again, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. So Luke has a special view of what God is doing to save the nations, which is a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. Mark focused on the action of Jesus. If you open up your Bible and it's like a red letter Bible that puts the words of Jesus in red and you look at the flip through really quickly, the book of Mark, you'll notice not a lot of red. That's because Mark focused on the action of Jesus. What did he do? What were his miracles? It's like scene to scene to scene to scene of Jesus doing this, then doing this, then doing this. Mark didn't include a lot of teaching. Matthew, his intent was to show how Jesus is like a new Moses. His account was targeted at a Jewish audience. Functions to display the manner in which Jesus fits into the mold of Moses. Moses saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Jesus is saving humanity from slavery to sin. That's what the Gospel of Matthew shows. John puts a special emphasis on the relationship between the Father and the Son and displays how it is that the Father sent the Son in order to accomplish the salvation of humanity. Luke has an emphasis on the nations. We'll see this over and over and over again. How is it that Jesus is the means by which God culminates his plan and fulfills his promise to bring salvation to all the peoples of the world through the people of Israel? That's what Luke is focused on. So why Luke and why right now? Remember Paul. Paul says, my goal is to know Christ, and I haven't taken hold of it yet, but I continue to strive after it because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Just in a pastoral sense, my goal is like Paul's. I want to know Jesus. I want to know everything there is to know about him. I want to know all about his life. I want to know all about who he was, what he stood for, and how that intersects with a broken world. I want to know how it is that he accomplished salvation. I want to know how his life intersects with my life and how that ought to impact how I interact in a broken world. I want to know Jesus as much as is possible on this side of eternity through my sin-stained lens. One day, I'll be taken to glory. And I'll know Jesus completely and fully then. But until that day, I want to know him as much as I can here on this earth. And I want the same for you. So maybe this series is the first time that you really see Jesus up close. Maybe it's the point at which the Lord uses his word and his grace to draw you into faith in Christ. I pray that that's true for some in this church. Maybe this series is a chance for you to reacquaint yourself with Jesus the biblical Jesus, not a cultural picture of Jesus, not a picture of Jesus that says, here's my opinion and here's my agenda and look at how I can smash Jesus into my preconceived agenda. Not that Jesus. There is no man-made system or no man-made agenda that Jesus will fit snugly into. He's going to cut across all of them. That's because all of our agendas and all of our systems are broken by sin and Jesus is not. And so, Jesus is going to cut through any of those. And the best way for us to understand who Jesus actually is, is to open up our Bibles and see him for ourselves. And so I hope that this series through the book of Luke over the next 14 months or so is a chance for us to reacquaint ourselves with the biblical Jesus. Who was he? What did he do? 
What did he say? Not just our favorite parables or our favorite stories or the interactions that we happen to remember, but the fullness of it. Maybe this series is an opportunity for you to see more of Jesus, to see him from a different angle, to be reminded of one of his myriad beauties, or just to sit and allow the full scope of his glory to wash over you. Why now? Because there's never a bad time for that. There's never a wrong time to know Jesus. Why now more specifically, as in like, why start in the middle of November and not start at the start of a new year? Well, two reasons. Number one, Luke's long and it wasn't going to fit all in one year. And a second reason is because there are 80 verses in chapter one, which provide us with a perfect opportunity to spend the Advent season seeing what it is that Luke has to say about the expectant waiting that came before the birth of Christ. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll do the first part of chapter two where Jesus is born. And so over the next few weeks here as we do Advent, we're just gonna do that alongside Luke as he writes about the early uh, days of people expectantly longing for the birth of this child. And then we'll see his birth on Christmas Eve. What is Luke's purpose? Look at verses one to four. Luke begins with this statement that says, here's what I'm doing, here's how I'm doing it, and here's why I'm doing it. And so let me just run through those really quickly. What? Luke tells us, I'm giving you a narrative account of Jesus's life. Verse one, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Luke makes it clear that he's writing an account of Jesus's life. He also makes it clear he's not the first one to do this. Many have undertaken this particular task. At the time Luke wrote, much of what was out there about Jesus was circulating in oral form, but there were written accounts. And so Luke says right off the beginning, others have done this, but I want to add to it. It's not all that different from someone in 2020 writing a biography of, say, Abraham Lincoln. There are lots of accounts of Abraham Lincoln out there. It's possible that there's nothing new to unearth about his life, but you can offer a different perspective. That's what Luke wants to do in his gospel. I also want to take a second in order to clarify something. A narrative account of Jesus' life is what we call a gospel. That would be with a capital G. We also talk a lot about the gospel. That would be with a lowercase g. The gospel, lowercase g, is the good news of salvation. That humanity, though separated from a holy and a righteous God because of the presence of sin, can have their sin washed clean and can be made one with that holy and righteous God thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That is the good news of the lowercase g gospel. A capital G gospel is the story that provides the context for how that happened. It's a narrative that tells us the good news of Jesus coming and his work on humanity's behalf, explaining the meaning and the details of Jesus's life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The capital G Gospels give us the history and explain the importance of this man, Jesus, who has brought to us the lowercase g Gospel. A capital G Gospel is the newspaper account of the lowercase g good news of the Gospel of Salvation. What? A narrative account of Jesus' life. How? Luke tells us, verse 3, It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence. That orderly sequence for Luke is theological. If you're a note taker, again, either underline or circle that word theologically. Here's why that matters. The gospel of Luke is mostly chronological, but not perfectly chronological. That's because Luke's primary aim is not one of 
chronology, it's one of theology. And so if you were to sit down and open up Mark or Matthew right next to Luke, you would notice that at certain points, they put the order of things differently. That's not either of the authors trying to be deceitful. It's that they have purposes that are a little bit different from one another. You'll notice that the gospel of Luke is mostly geographical. And by that, I mean it starts in Jerusalem, moves away from Jerusalem, and eventually comes back to Jerusalem. But it's also not perfectly geographical. The order of Luke is theological. Luke wants to display that everything in the life of Jesus is moving toward the accomplishment of God's will and purpose for the salvation of humanity. And so he orders his gospel account around that. For Luke, the accomplishment of this purpose has been playing out since the very beginning of human time, and it's culminating in Jesus. Very broadly, this theological movement has four pieces, which we're going to highlight throughout this series. We're going to do so with these little graphics. So here's what they look like. You're going to see these over the course of the series. Jesus is born. There's like the presentation of the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's born and presented at the temple in Jerusalem. He then visits Jerusalem with his family. And that's where you get the kind of popular account of Jesus being left behind at the temple while his family goes and heads back to their home in Nazareth. And mom and dad realize that Jesus isn't there and they go back and there's Jesus seated in the temple with these teachers of the law around him and they're astounded. That's in Jerusalem. Then everything shifts away. And in the next scene, Uh, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching, then Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted, and then his early ministry takes place in the area of Galilee. So from like the middle of chapter four through about the end of chapter nine, all of Jesus's ministry circles in this area of Galilee. And then in chapter nine, verse 51, we're told that Jesus determined to journey to Jerusalem, or your translation might say, set his face toward Jerusalem. And from 951 all the way into the triumphal entry, everything that Luke records is on a walk with Jesus toward the cross. That's that third purple graphic up there. Then from that moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem until his ascension is the last chunk, and it all takes place in Jerusalem. As you read the gospel of Luke, Jesus is marching toward the cross. But more importantly, God is marching forward his will for the salvation of humanity through the work of his son. And Luke organizes his gospel around that reality. Starts it in Jerusalem, moves Jesus away, and then walks Jesus back toward the cross. Luke literally wants his readers to walk alongside Jesus in that. Smell the animal trough where Jesus is born. Hear the words that come from his mouth while he's teaching. See the interactions that he has with people while he's healing. Feel the heat of the sun and the dust from along the road as he walks and ministers to people. Understand the clamoring of the crowds, either those that were desperate to get near to him or those that wanted him dead. Experience the weight of the cross as Jesus carries it up to Calvary. Know the depth of the joy of peeking into that empty tomb. How does Luke put all that together in his story? By taking you on a walk alongside the Savior. Jesus, Messiah and Lord. Having you step into the life of Christ and walk next to him as he accomplishes the eternal will of God to save humanity from the crushing weight of their sin. That is the how 
of the gospel of Luke. And then why? Verse 4 tells us why. So that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke wants his readers, Theophilus and us today, to know with certainty who Jesus is. He gave years of his life to putting together a two-volume account of what Jesus did in his life and in the life of the early church. Why? So that people would know. And in knowing, they would believe. And in believing, they would have certainty. Remember, Luke spent years with Paul. And what was Paul's desire? To know Christ. So it only makes sense that Luke would then spin out all of this work so that people would know Jesus. That's the point. You've got Luke writing, saying, I'm writing this so that you will know Christ, know him completely, know him fully, know him intimately, know him with certainty, know him relationally, know what his life means for your life, know what his life means for the life of the nations. And the key is that in knowing that we would believe. Thabiti Anyabwile, who is a pastor outside of Washington, D.C., says this, we cannot live without belief of some sort. We may believe in God or we may believe in our bodies in a material universe that has no meaning. In either case, we are believers. There are no unbelievers in the world, just people who believe in different things. Luke wants you to believe in the truth. And that truth is found in Jesus. Luke wants his people to know what they believe. And knowing what we believe as Christians means knowing who who we believe in, and that is Jesus. Luke doesn't want his readers, he doesn't want the church to check their brains at the door. He wants you to know with certainty. So he gives a lot of details and places and names and facts that could be checked and verified so that we might know Christ and believe in Christ and have certainty in what we believe in. So let me circle back to the question, why Luke and why now? Well, because the goal is knowing Jesus. There's never a wrong time to know him. There's never a wrong time to investigate Jesus. There's never a wrong time to see Jesus. There's never a wrong time to look at Jesus. There's never a wrong time to look to Jesus. The goal is to know him, to know him deeply, to cherish him fully. So there's never a wrong time to open up a gospel and to take a look at the person of Jesus Christ. That's Luke's purpose. Let me give you some big picture, and let me tell you why I want to do this. On your seat when you sat down, there should have been a little piece of paper, a little like half sheet looked like this. There are times in our study of Scripture where it makes the most sense to go very slowly and take, whether it be just like a few verses at a time one morning and reflect deeply on what a couple of sentences in Scripture have to say, but there are other times where it makes sense to read for the big picture. I want to talk about the big picture in Luke, but I also want to invite you to take a look at the big picture for yourself over the course of this week. And so I split up the book of Luke into what should be about 15 minutes of reading a day. It's as balanced as I could make the number of verses. It's either three or four chapters every day where in the course of a week, you could read the entirety of the book and get the big picture for yourself. You could just read it like a novel, not like a textbook, but instead like a biography. Pick it up and read alongside us over the course of this week. And here are some of the things that you would see if you choose to read the Gospel of Luke this way. Many people commonly refer to Luke as a historian, but he's more a theologian. And Luke, 
throughout his gospel has a lot to say about a number of topics. I want to point out five of them that really jump off the page. The first is Luke has a lot to say about the Old Testament, specifically about the fact that Jesus is the Old Testament's fulfillment. He's not just the fulfillment of the laws. He's not just a fulfillment of the prophecies. He fulfills the whole thing. Everything that the Old Testament was about, all that it contained, all that it pointed to, everything that it commanded, all of its people, all of its scenes, all of its statements, they point in one direction. And Luke wants you to be absolutely certain when Jesus bursts onto the scene that that direction has arrived. And his name is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Luke has much to say about God's nature. Specifically, what he wants to display about God's nature is that God is working in the world. The presence of the Son is evidence that God is at work in the world. One of the unique aspects of Luke's gospel is the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout. We tend to think about the Holy Spirit as arriving at Pentecost in the book of Acts, and then the Holy Spirit takes off with the work of the church. You sit down and you read the gospel of Luke for the big picture, you will see that the Holy Spirit is present throughout. In fact, you sit down and read your Bible, and you will notice that the Holy Spirit is present at creation, and the Holy Spirit is going to be there at glorification, and is present and working all throughout. And Luke wants you to understand, God is working in the world, and he's doing it through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke has much to say about salvation by grace, through Jesus, for all the nations. Its nature is by grace. We're separated from God by sin, and yet it is a gracious act of God to bridge that gap, sending his son that all who place their faith in him might have their sin forgiven, be washed clean, and spend eternity in perfect communion with the Lord. Luke has much to say about the scope of that salvation, and that is the nations. All people are being drawn back to the Lord, people of all nations. That was the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Luke wants us to see with clarity that that is being fulfilled in Jesus, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Luke has much to say about salvation's result, and that result is peace. You'll see the word peace used throughout the gospel of Luke. That salvation ultimately brings peace between humanity and God, but salvation also works itself out in the fact that peace is what ought to be working through the life of believers into a broken world. Luke has much to say about people, meaning individual people. In fact, Luke's emphasis is on those who would be quote-unquote culturally insignificant. We see this in the prominence of women throughout the Gospel of Luke. Mary, Jesus' mother, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, Anna, who's present at the temple when Jesus is presented, Martha, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, a widow who gives to God out of her poverty, women who are healed, women who lament for Jesus as he goes to and is on the cross. All of them are not only present, they are theologically significant. And Luke doesn't want you to miss it. Luke has much to say about the poor. They're present at Jesus' birth, the shepherds. Jesus says that he's come to preach the gospel to the poor. Luke reports that there are blessings for the poor in contrast to woes for the rich. In fact, Luke has much to say about the danger of wealth. Luke has something to say about the outcast, tax collectors, sinners, the sick, adulterous women. 
all are able to find comfort in the presence of Jesus. And that ought to say something to Christians about how it is that we treat those that society would push aside. Maybe the most beautiful part of the Gospel of Luke is the continual theme of rejoicing. A continual reality that Jesus is cause for celebration. The verb rejoice occurs more in the Gospel of Luke than in any other New Testament book. Jesus' life starts and ends literally with the universe erupting in praise. That's what happens at Jesus' birth, and that's what happens at Jesus' ascension. And then everything that happens in between, when someone interacts with Jesus, there is joy, rejoicing, laughter. It punctuates how it is that the universe interacts with the coming of the Son. And it is something that we should not miss when we read the Gospel of Luke. God is working salvation. He's bringing peace, and that is cause for celebration. It's cause for celebration in all of heaven, and it is cause for celebration in the church. My prayer as we read through the, the gospel of Luke, if nothing else happens, is that we as followers of Jesus who have seen the Son and understand who he is and interact with him on a daily basis would do so with rejoicing because Jesus is cause for celebration. And if you're getting the goal to know him, then there ought to be joy in your life. It should be present. It should be obvious. The worst of sinners, quote unquote, who interact with Jesus in the gospel of Luke, walk away rejoicing. Pharisees, who refuse to see the truth of Jesus, walk away somber. When we understand who we are before the Lord and we see what the Son has done to bridge that gap, we ought to walk away with joy, not with sadness, not with frustration, not with anger. As we spend our time in the gospel of Luke over the next 14 months, my prayer is that there would be joy and rejoicing in the truth of the Son. Amen? Amen. So I want to invite you over the next five days, or seven days, I'm sorry, read the gospel of Luke for the big picture. Take 15 minutes, know that the goal is to know Jesus, and see who you encounter. Keep an eye out for these five things. One other aspect that I want us to do in this series is that I want us to spend time singing songs about Jesus. And so uh, we're going to spend time, like we always do, responding in worship after our sermons. And they're going to be Jesus-focused songs, which like you sit there and you say, uh, duh. But I mean songs that actually talk about the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so this morning, we're going to sing... Cornerstone, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. We wanna sing about Jesus and there should be joy and rejoicing in the singing about Jesus who is worthy of celebrating, amen? The goal is to know him. We're gonna know him in scripture and we wanna know him in song. And so let's pray and then we'll close with some singing. God, thank you for your son. God, I pray over the next 14 months as we walk through the gospel of Luke together, Lord, would we see Jesus with clarity and would we know him deeply? God, whether we've been walking with Jesus for a long time or we're being introduced to Jesus for the very first time, would we know who he is in truth? God, would you display for us the biblical reality of your son and would that be cause for rejoicing? for us.
God, I pray that we would celebrate Jesus throughout the course of this series, that we would make much of the Son, and that our celebration would look like what the universe does as it reacts to the Son. God, would we know Jesus and would we celebrate him, not just in this series, but in our lives. We pray in his holy name, amen. Stand up, let's sing together. I realize that it's only November 22nd, um, but we're, we're gonna kind of start taking like the long view to Christmas here. Um, if you're someone who's been around LCF for very long, um, you'll recognize that there's a particular song that we sing every holiday season. It's to the tune of Old Lang Syne. The name of the song is All Glory Be to Christ. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the song, the tune should be familiar, and so you, you should be able to pick up on it pretty quickly. But the, the thrust behind the song is that in all things, all glory would, would go to Jesus. And we sing it almost as a prayer, not that like God would somehow get the glory that he deserves because he will get that, but that as followers of Jesus, we would humbly and submissively actually give to him joyfully all the glory for all that we do in all of our lives. And so all glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. This is how we're gonna close our service this morning. So if you would join us in song.